Uh, God's going to fell the Assyrian forest, and now 20 to 23. And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck him, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, the mighty God. For though your people of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So focus on the remnant of God's people. Those who, after being purged and purified by the Assyrian scourge, will be blessed by God. What did he tell you about the character of this remnant? Yes, which is such a key thing. They're people who come to trust in God. That's what it takes to be one of the remnant. That's the central issue of Isaiah, it seems to me. Is Are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust in gods you make? Are you going to trust in alliances with other nations? They will come not to trust in the Assyrians or whoever they're making an alliance with, but rely on the Lord. They'll return to God. Um, that's a blessing and it's a curse. They may have had a lot of people. It's only going to be a remnant. But there will be a remnant that God will bless. And all of that is determined by God's decree. Both the punishments and the blessings do not come by the operation of some mechanical or political forces, but they come by God's will and by God's plan and determination. So, the Assyrian will be destroyed and a remnant will return. Comments and questions? Twenty-four to thirty-four. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people, who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with a rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while my indignation against you will be spent, and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will allow his scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of oil. His staff is the over the sea. He will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of that. He has come against Ayat. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the path saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Rama is terrified and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of God. Pay attention, Laisha, and wretched Anathoth. Madmina has fled. The inhabitants of, of Yemen have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bows of a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty. Alright, this is God bringing the Assyrian down. The Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom and came up to the neck of Judah. But he says, don't fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod. Because what is God going to do? turn his anger toward them. Yes. He's used them in his anger against his people. Now, that anger will be spent. He will have accomplished the punishment that he was using the Assyrians for, and then he will direct his anger toward the destruction of the Assyrians just like he did when? Gideon's time. Back in Gideon's time? And just like he did when? When he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Yes. 
just like in the days of Gideon, just like in the days of the Exodus. And that gives you hope and confidence. If God was able to conquer the Midianites and the Egyptians, he'll be able to conquer the Assyrians. He'll be able to remove that burden and that yoke from their neck. Comments or questions through verse 27. Yes, Logan. Uh, could, when it says in verse 27, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness, when it's talking about the remnant coming back, is, is that saying that, the, is that like a symbolism that God's going to bless them? Well, he is going to bless them. I'm not sure. Maybe the idea of the fatness is the idea of pride. He's going to break their yoke because of their pride. But I'm not sure about that. Shane? Uh, in verse 26, it's talking about when the Ephraim, Ephraimites killed two of the Midianites' leaders in the end of Judges 7, Oreb and Zeb. And notice, by the way, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him. We're going to see in chapter 28, uh, whenever we get there, that the Assyrians themselves were seen as a scourge. But God is going to scourge his scourge, just like he chopped down his axe and so forth. So that's kind of uh, appropriate. And then you see in 28 to 32, sort of the relentless advance of the Assyrian army city after city. Those cities don't mean a whole lot to us, but it makes it much more vivid and concrete for the Israelites. You know, if near your area somebody started describing the advance of the enemy, mentioning city after city, you knew where it was and you'd been there. It's getting closer and closer and finally they come right up to Jerusalem, shaking their fist at Jerusalem. That's what the Assyrians did. According to the Assyrian annals, they captured 46 uh, uh, cities of Judah and surrounded, as I said, shutting up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And then what did God do? Drop the axe. Drop the axe and felled the Assyrian forest with a great terrible crash. Verse 33 and 34. God is the great forester who manages the earth's plantation. You know, and when he gets ready, he just chops down the whole Assyrian forest. Comments and questions on chapter 10. Chris. Is the remnant a dual meaning here? In, in this remnant? Uh, how so? Uh, the actual returning people there and in the Christian age. Or the... Okay, yes. Yes, I think so. In that sense, yeah. That, that you're thinking about a, an immediate remnant and the return from the captivity, but in a greater sense, it's really the remnant God blesses through Christ. Yes, I agree. In most of this, you have that. <laughs> and usually, or is it maybe a question, usually there will be things that don't fit completely with either one. Sometimes there is. Sometimes you've got some statements that apply more to the physical return and sometimes more to the spiritual return. In the same section. Yes. Or sometimes the language is more vaguely applied to the physical return and more strongly to the spiritual return. Much of the, much of the, the in that day blessings in the prophets, much of that is more looking to the messianic age than it is to the return from captivity in my judgment. The return from captivity is sort of a, kind of a preliminary shadow of the true ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So is there another message then with the destruction of Assyria related to the Messianic age? Well, maybe in a sense that God will destroy the bondage that they are in in sin. Yeah. Daniel? Oh, I thought you had your finger on. Other comments and questions? So, all the way back in verse 22, the destruction that's mentioned there, what, was that the destruction of Israel that I think pulled I'll, it down into the river? Or, or what was that? Maybe so. Maybe that's the idea of first they're destroyed and then they're delivered. Okay. <laughs> 
you might be able to see it as the destruction of the Assyrians as well, but I think maybe in this context it would be better to see it as Israel's destroyed and then the remnant is delivered. So more that purifying process. Yes. The destruction is necessary for God to be able to bless the remnant. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Eric. What are all these places here in 28? Um, cities in Israel, Judah. You know, the cities more or less that were picturing the Assyrian army as advancing through that they came right up to the neck of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so you're picturing the, the, the constant advance of the Assyrian army. Any other thoughts or comments? And Lebanon, in the last verse, referring to... Well, we're picturing the Assyrian army as a forest. And where was the greatest forest? The cedars of Lebanon. Yes, Lebanon was well known for that. So, the Assyrians are perhaps the greatest military forest there was. And God just went in with his axe and felled the forest of Lebanon, quote-unquote. Not right. a geographic Lebanon. I think not. Yeah. Yeah, I think not. Oh boy, there's so much of this. There's so much imagery and symbolism and poetry. It's a challenge to keep up with. The more we study the prophets, the more familiar we get and the easier it is. Pull that verse out by itself just to jump in. It would be hard to see that, but it, 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 it makes much more sense as... Yeah, doesn't everything make more sense in context? <laughs> Especially if we want to make any accurate sense of it. Yeah. Good point. Other thoughts? Yeah, next. Is there a lot more uh, said about a remnant of Judah returning than a remnant of Israel? I struggle to find passages that talk about the remnant of Israel also returning. We have Anna in uh, the New Testament who is from the tribe of Asher. But... I, I, I remember there's another passage, maybe Joel or somewhere, that is a really that really strongly states it, like this verse 20, that a remnant of Israel also will return. <coughs> I feel like I had a hard time. Um, you can just see a clearer picture of the remnant of Judah returning. Although this remnant should probably at least include Israel, since. Israel is what was destroyed by the Assyrians, and he speaks of the house of Jacob. That is more of a challenge. Obviously, Babylon swallowed up Assyria, so in some senses you could think of the return by the Persians as including the northern kingdom as well. You also have, and I probably won't find it, in Ezra, when they offered sacrifices, they offered sacrifices for the twelve tribes of, of Israel. Remember where that was? I don't remember exactly where that is. Um, but that's an indication that they considered this to be all of Israel that had returned. I just don't write offhand to remember where that is. Ezra's not my best book. They, they do it twice. They, they do it when Ezra comes. Uh, the second time they do it when they comes. So that'd be chapter 6 Yes, okay, yes. In 6, uh, 17 at the end. 8.35. Yeah, for all Israel. 12 of them. All right, very good. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, so I think that's helpful for us. I want to suggest another thought for you that I've given a little bit of thought to. I don't know how strong to go with this. But do you remember passages like Second Chronicles 11 in the reign of Jeroboam and Rehoboam and 2 Chronicles 15 in the reign of Asa where people from all the various tribes in the north came down and joined Judah. There is a sense in which Judah almost became all Israel. The spiritually minded remnant from all those tribes. It, in, in 2 Chronicles 15, I think it's especially strong with naming some of the tribes, if I remember correctly. 2 Chronicles 15, 9. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. That's why, uh, remember, Basha fortified the border city of Ramah, just trying to keep the people from you know, going down and, and defecting to Judah. And so maybe, maybe there's also that, that when Judah comes back, 
they really kind of encompassed all Israel anyway, and so that was thought of as the return of all Israel. I don't know. That's that's a little bit of a difficult issue, JD. Okay. In Jeremiah three, we have promise of the remnant from Israel, and partly after Israel has been carried away. Uh, yes. Good point. Uh, Jeremiah three, starting at eleven. So I, mean, I think that was important because that's talking about people who have been carried away when Judah hasn't been. So. Yes. Yes. Good point. Yeah, I'll buy that. Logan. I wonder if uh, verse 22 could maybe also be a prophecy about the establishment of the New Testament church because at the end of verse 22 it says, the destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness, which reminds me of Matthew 27, when Jesus was crucified, and the veil was split in two. And then later, after the New Testament was written, when the temple was utterly destroyed, and it says only when and then with them, then will return, and there was very few of the Jews who obeyed the gospel. So I wonder if maybe that's almost like a foreshadowing of that. Well, I do think at least 20 to 23, the remnant here is talking more about the faithful remnant under Christ than anything else. Other comments and questions? Yes, Ryan. Is it talking about Assyria in general, or is it talking about Assyria? I think this is the um, uh, invasion under Sennacherib, but of course he was the Assyrian emperor, so I mean the Assyrian Empire was involved in that. But yeah, I think this is probably a 701 passage, and the felling of the Assyrian forest is when God sent the angel to destroy the Assyrian army. Other thoughts? Remember that Isaiah is a balanced preacher. We see judgment passages interspersed with the ultimate blessing passages. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. The shoe will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest, rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his loins. Alright, so the Assyrian force is chopped down. The um, planting of God's people, there's a shoot that springs forth, giving new life. This shoot springs forth from the stem of Jesse and is also considered to be a branch from his roots. Now, again, this idea of coming from from, uh, the stem but also coming from the roots I think is the idea that the Messiah came from Jesse but also came from what gave rise to Jesse. That he's the... uh, the root and offspring of David. Jesus is both God and man, but he comes forth to bear fruit. And so we're we're thinking back to Isaiah 9 and some of those other messianic passages, and we see his um, qualifications, his endowment for his role as king. In verse 2, what does he have? He has the Lord. He has God's Spirit on him. Notice the sevenfold symbolism the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. He has the seven spirits of God on him from Revelation. The sevenfold fullness of the Spirit rests on Jesus to qualify him to rule. And notice that. 
these qualities of the spirit are the very qualities needed for competent spiritual leadership today. You need God, the Lord's Spirit. You need the wisdom, the understanding, the counsel, the strength, the knowledge, and the fear of the Lord to really be an appropriate spiritual leader. Notice the contrast with 10.13. The Assyrian saying, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. Here's the wisdom that comes from God's Spirit. And go back to 9.6. He's the wonderful counselor because he has the spirit of counsel and strength. So Jesus is the one who has the true wisdom and power of God, not the self-made wisdom and power of the Assyrians. So that's where Jesus came from, verse 1. That's his equipping by God to rule in verse 2. Do you have comments and questions on 1 and 2? Shane? Uh... Two questions, really. One, first one is, what is that? Where is in relation to that? Uh, several places. Five, five, four, five, two, or three places like that. The greeting, first. Yeah, one, one, five, one, four, somewhere to there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the second question. So when it says branch in verse one, it's talking about these, correct? Yes. Well, then does that not connect with what it says in four or two? Maybe so. I don't know. Uh, make, I know the New York stem, doesn't it? Yeah. Shoot uh, from the stem of Justin a branch from his roots. It almost makes me... See, New, New King James says branch. It almost makes me think that if you use branch, talking about these in 11-1, then we're talking about branch. Maybe so. Especially if that's the same word, that would be a stronger argument. Yeah. And that may be... Matt. Mine has, mine has a capital S for spirit. I'm just kind of trying to understand that and what the mindset is. Well, I think that's okay. I mean, I think this is God's spirit that rests on Jesus. And the New Testament especially gives God's spirit sort of the status of personhood. So that's probably an accurate thing. And you see the result of that. His rule itself in verse 3 through 5. He delights in the fear of the Lord. And look at the judgments that he gives as the ruler. He's not like earthly authorities. Because how does he judge? Which is pretty much what we're limited to. His ability to judge not by sight or hearing enables him to do what? Yeah, to distinguish between the appearance and the reality. To actually see accurately into the truth of the situation. And so he's able to judge with righteousness, the poor, decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Um, He's certainly able to be just and fair because he has perfect insight into the facts and the truth. And because he's very impartial, he is fair to the weak and the vulnerable. As we keep talking about, he doesn't overlook or uh, commit injustice toward the unimportant people, which is one of these basic characteristics of godly rule. And uh, he's able to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips. He doesn't really need a weapon. His word commands the earth. And then what's his belt? Righteousness. And faithfulness. The belt's kind of thing that ties up your clothes together, you know, that kind of unifies you. The, the, the belt around him that kind of pulls it all together is righteousness and faithfulness. Those special characteristics of godly government. That's a really rich passage just right there, talking about the reign of the Messiah, giving some great detail into the kind of the blessings that God will bring by bringing forth this new shoot from the felled stump of David. Comments and questions?
seeing this righteousness and faithfulness, and I had had a reference back to Psalm 89, 14. It says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So, I keep thinking back to that. Well, yeah, and lots of places. Psalm 97, 2, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That, there are several passages. That, those are the characteristics of God's rule. And uh, so... The Messiah shared that. But Wes? In verse 4, when he talks about the rod of the mouth and the breath of his lips, is that the same? I know it's kind of like the same picture of power coming out of the mouth of God as in Revelation when John describes Jesus in the first chapter. Is is that actually the same analogy that he's making? The power of his word. Absolutely. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. How did God create the world? And uh, Psalm 33, with the breath of his mouth, he made everything. I mean, it's just, wow. It's incredible to have a God who can, who ha- whose words have so much power, he just speaks them and they happen. So, this righteous branch, just the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips, slay the wicked. What he says happens. It just seems interesting to me that because he's so powerful with what he says, but when he punishes, he punishes with something that seems more destructive than us, like his hand or something. This seems like a different kind of energy. We just use different images, but you know, all of the images are rather impressive. I mean, if God wants to whip the world, it's his words, or maybe his hand. Or maybe he whistles. Maybe he raises the flag. Maybe he he stands up. You know, or whatever. I mean, where do you ever see God with a machine gun? He doesn't need one. Other comments? It kind of makes me think of in Hebrews when it talks about God's word being like a sharp sword or whatever. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Other thoughts? Six through ten. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So here is more or less the effect of his rulership on his world. And he uses illustrations from the animal kingdom, like the wolf dwelling with the lamb. Um, What's the normal relationship between wolves and lambs? Animosity. Do what? Animosity, yeah. Carnage. Yes. um, Eater and the eaten. Yeah. (laughs) The predator and the prey. You know, uh, not especially advisable for a lamb to go to sleep beside a wolf. Um, The leopard will lie lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. You want to let your little boy out with the young lion leading them? The cow and the bear graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. What's the nature of the lion's eating habits today? They're a carnivore. They need meat. God changes the lion's nature. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And if you want to let your little infants play with snakes... Venomous snakes, the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an amazing transformation. As God causes the animals here to live together in peace and give security to the most vulnerable of his creation. 
What's that all talking about anyway? <laughs> Hebrews talks about it um, somewhere, talking about how uh, man was originally created in, to, to have domination over all the earth, over all the animals, and, and um, we don't see that today. Um, but when Christ came, that he kind of brought that back to us, brought us back to the position that we, we had before. That is true. That's Hebrews 2. That's true. Is this primarily focused on animals here? No? Yeah. Yes. Micah. Yeah, it seems like verse, verse 9 is important. And it says, yeah, this should be the knowledge of the Lord. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but. Um, I think verse 8 is important. <laughs> because, where do you first see uh, the snake in the Bible? Yeah, Genesis 3. And how do you see the snake? Yeah. In, you know, Satan used the snake to bring sin and death. To bring the curse. Now, if the child can play with the snake, somehow or other, God's transformed that curse. And and the idea of reun- of uniting the predator and the prey reminds me of passages like Ephesians 2, where God, where God brings peace between Jew and Gentile. Between those who had great animosity. And the peace and security we have in Christ you know, God has transformed the nature of men to enable them to be united. He has given us security and protection from the spiritual dangers that we face. And because we have the knowledge of God, we have uh, protection, we have security, we have unity. It seems to me like this is a spiritually focused passage, looking at what we have in Christ now, in terms of the peace and the security, in terms of uh, the snake's not dangerous to us anymore, because God has given us um, new life and uh, a relationship with Him. Daniel, uh, so this isn't about the peace and security under you know, under Christ. Could it, could it be possible that the little child in verse six is the same child that was? Maybe, but maybe also he's just saying even the weakest will not be hurt by the snake. In the Messiah's world, there's security, there's protection, there's peace, there's the knowledge of God. There is unity. I mean, I, I do think it's remarkable how the Lord unites diverse people in perfect peace and harmony. If you stop and think about it, the Jews and the Gentiles, the slaves and the masters, um, Americans and Brazilians, you know, Republicans and Democrats, UK fans and UFL fans, I don't know, occasional North Carolina fan or whatever. And so forth and so on. Comments and thoughts? Verses 6 through 9 really remind me a lot of chapter 2, uh, particularly verses 4, or verse 4, um, where, you know, due to this change in, in thought that's being brought about by the Messiah, the fundamental nature of things changes. You know, uh, swords yes. are beat into plowshares, spears are beat into pruning hooks. Lions and, and lambs associate with each other. I mean, it's it's not the physical is really the result of a change in mindset on the part of the, of God's people as a result of this new teaching that's going forth. And in fact, in both places, he talks about the holy mountain and the earth being full of the knowledge and things like that. But, the, but it's the teaching that changes the physical things, not the other way around. 
And we know that that's, this is today because verse 10. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples. That's talking about the Gentiles coming to Christ. It's cited in Romans 15.12 as applying today. He's the rallying point that the Gentile nations you know, come to. Other thoughts through 10? Yeah, Linda? Uh, two. Oh, excuse me. Linda. Um, in, uh, she put her hand up. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I care. <laughs> in um, 513, it says that the people went into exile for lack of knowledge. And I think in Hosea, like, they just like for lack of knowledge. So it's cool that they're not destroyed anymore because now they have knowledge. Good. It kind of relates back to 9 verse 6 and how one of his names was the Prince of Peace. And here's a really an example of that. Yeah, you're seeing that theme brought through there, aren't you? The the 2-4 and then the 9-6 and then this with the peace. That's a good point. That's my... Uh, What do you think verse 9 means when it says the earth should be full of knowledge? Well, I think in... in um, the world of the Messiah, they know the Lord, and they live in peace and harmony and unity with each other. Like in Jeremiah 31, where yeah. all shall know. Yeah. You're saying that the knowledge of the Lord produces it? Produces the unity in that. Yes. Okay. yes. Kind of going back to what Mindy said, um, I was noticing in the first couple of verses of chapter 11 how many of the spirits have to do with understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. I don't know, but there's an emphasis on knowledge. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. You can't come to this without knowing the Lord and His will. To the law and to the testimony. A20. Other thoughts? Yes, Eric. Do you think maybe look at there verse nine we says when he says about the earth knowing the uh, the Lord that um that has to do with the Messiah coming to communicate God to us more clearly. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think verse nine is special. <laughs> that's so weird, Kyle, because that's exactly what I was thinking. It's frightening. It's an important verse. Alright. <laughs> Other comments, of course. Is the one that should be really scared. <laughs> there is. My kid. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you, you're free to withdraw that earlier statement <laughs> considering the company <laughs> Jenny. he's going to tend there that uh, we're talking about in the concept of peace that his resting place will be both glorious but this is after the battle this is the, the resting it's the Sabbath, it's, it's all over uh, the victory has been achieved is that, is that the point of that? after the Messiah came and died then he provides us security and peace and rest from sin, from bondage. I, I wouldn't say that's like in heaven. I'd say that's like the rest we have in the Lord now. Other comments or questions? Mason, what did you allude to earlier? I can't remember. I'm going to write that down. Do you remember what she said earlier? Say it again. Which 3-4? I can't remember. 2-4. 2-4-0. Just that it's the... I mean, you know, in 11-2, he talks about, we mentioned, you know, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, counsel. I mean, it's this change of thought that... And, and, I mean, if you want to think of it as the new teaching, the New Testament, that the Messiah brings, um, the root of Jesse brings, if that causes these physical changes, in the, na- the fundamental changes in the physical natures of things, swords are beaten to, you know, uh, swords and spears are beaten to agricultural implements, um, lions lay down with lambs, and just the physical nature of things changes because, not because the physical changes are the focus, but because the teaching 
and the way people think has changed. Anything else? 11 to 16. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will be, the subject, will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scourging wind, and he will strike it into seven streams, and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. So, it'll happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain. What was the first time? Physical return after the captivity? I don't think so, but that's often thought. After the, uh, after they were going to go to the promised land the first time, whenever uh, they allowed all the people who just believed in God to die. I don't think so. The Exodus itself. I think the Exodus. Yes, and he uses that Exodus symbolism. I would say, I believe would would say that, especially because fifteen and sixteen. I think there's going to be a new deliverance, a new redemption, a second time the Lord is going to liberate His people from bondage, and. uh, from everywhere. In fact, there will be no place too remote from the four corners of the earth. God will bring his people. Here it's a spiritual redemption. In the Exodus, it was a physical redemption. He will change them. He will eliminate their jealousy, their quarreling. They will subdue their foes. Verse 14, he describes those in terms of his own day. But I think in spiritual terms, they will actually convert their enemies and they will bring them into Christ. They will have dominion over them in that sense. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. He'll wave his hand over the river and people will walk across dry shod. There's a new exodus. The Lord will eliminate the barriers. He will deliver his people from bondage and sin and make them come into the freedom and liberty that he gives them in Christ. There'll be a highway for the remnant just like there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So I think he's saying, you know, through Christ there'll be a new exodus, a new way out of bondage, a way into hope, and transformation and blessing. That's the result of the sun being born or the shoot springing up. This chapter, I think, is an outstanding chapter to see the Messiah and his work. Comments and questions? Shane. I think all the nations ultimately. Uh, he recovers them from everywhere and he gathers them from the four corners. He's using Israelite terminology, but I think from verse 10 we'd see this as being more than just them. Yeah, that's what I thought, but then in verse 12 it says, we'll assemble the outcasts of Israel. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> well, if you view the, the the people who would be called into the new Israel in the new covenant as the ones that are scattered all over the earth, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, we are God's Israel today. Maybe that's the idea. Other thoughts, comments, questions? I appreciate how, like in chapter 9, it continually talked about how God's hand was still against them, and yet now in verse 11, that his hand has recovered them. 
Good point. Yeah, that is good. Hand against versus this. Okay. Matt. Good. Good. I'm not sure where all we had hands. Right, Matt. I think I think it's kind of with this as the backdrop. God promises that there will be a new Exodus, and we see in Jesus who we study his life, we see a lot of uh, similarities between the Exodus, between Jesus, like like in John six, he talks about himself as as greater than the manna that Moses gave, and so you know, Jesus is kind of reenacting the Exodus in some sense, saying that this is the remnant, this is God saving his people is through me. This is kind of a backdrop. Absolutely, <laughs> there's Exodus imagery all over the New Testament in every way. Yeah, absolutely. Say. Um, I was going to say a minute ago about this is a this is telling us what's going to happen to Israel. This is this is talking about all the sins that Israel has done and the destruction that was going to come to Israel. And they were God's chosen people. The same as you are now God's chosen people. And we should look at this as not making the same decisions, the wrong decisions, and making the same mistakes that God's chosen people make in the past. Yes. We can definitely apply this wrong lines. We're not just talking about somewhere in history. If we are a certain people, we've got to make sure we don't make the same mistakes as Israel. Chelsea. Um, I did a message. Is it a chronological message, or is it like a punishment and blessing? More the second. Yeah, I don't think this is chronological, really, um, so much. I mean, he kind of intersperses even different time periods. So I think it's more thematic. David. Um, in verse 15, the tongue of the sea of Egypt seems kind of strange to me. Is that the idea of like a boasting tongue, kind of like the pride thing? I think it's probably, sometimes we'll talk about the, you know, a kind of a shooting out of water as a tongue. I think that's more the idea. You know, he, uh, he opened up the Red Sea. I think that's the idea. So that was perhaps the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. I think that's the idea. Anybody want to help me with that? That's what I think. Mindy! Uh, so the idea of, I guess, that, like, uh, his hand was stretched out and now it's blessing. And also, like, going on with that, and there's 12 his standard was used to call the Assyrians and now it's being used to call these people. That was in 526, I think. Okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. It, it, it probably, I mean, the more we look at this, wow, there is so much depth in Isaiah. I, I think that's one of the things that just fascinates me about Isaiah. That's true of every book, but wow, it's really true in Isaiah. There is a lot to this. I mean, it's like, you know, when God put these things together, Wow, he had such depth and profundity that you keep studying, you keep seeing more and more and more, almost new levels of understanding. It's just wow. I mean, the Bible is just incredible. I don't think I don't think a human book would ever have the kind of you know. Every time you read it, you see more. <laughs> you see more. You see more. And uh, trying to see those things is certainly helpful to us. Other thoughts? Verse 16, the highway from Assyria. That uh, depicting a, a, you know, just the return, the, the, play, the, the way for people to return in a physical sense as, as God's people will spiritually. Yes, I think so. I think he's describing the spiritual uh, future in physical terms relating to their day. Other thoughts? Well, the result of the Exodus, Exodus 15, was the song they sang of praise and thanksgiving to God. And in a similar way, we have the song of chapter 12. And we can remember even as we read this chapter the song that we have come to sing quite a bit on this chapter. So chapter 12. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, 
and thou dost comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see two sections in this. In verse 1, then you will say, on that day that's you singular. In verse 4, in that day you will say that's you plural. Those are kind of the two sections, 1 to 3 and uh, 4 to 6. All right, in 1, what do you say? Yes. The focus is on God. He is the one who executes the salvation, so we thank Him. We trust Him for our salvation because you were angry, your anger is turned away. One of the marvels of Isaiah is what happened to the anger of God against us. Why was his anger turned away? And I think the answer comes in chapter 53. He he executed his anger on his sacrificial lamb. But with the angers turned away, you know, God blesses. And so there's this great praise and thanks to God. God's my salvation. He's my strength and song. It's so appropriate when God saves to sing it, to praise Him, to glorify Him. Uh, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. God's salvation is so abundant. It's like we get get to draw buckets full of salvation from his, uh, you know, gushing spring. And there's so much joy in this. There's so much. There's so much reason we ought to thank and praise God. He's provided such an abundant salvation so freely to us. Isn't it only appropriate that we give thanks, that we sing His praise? for what he's done. You read chapter 11 and you think about how God has saved you from your bondage to sin. Sing it and thank you. Comments and questions on 1 to 3. Yes, Logan. Uh, I just have a comment on pretty much the whole of chapter 12. I think it's interesting. All uh, from about from about uh, 9, 8 to I think it's 10.4, talks about the punishments uh, that God's going to send on them. All, all that, uh, all of the verses are on that, and then there's six verses uh, more positive. I just, I just found that a little bit interesting. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? In that day, you will say, verse 4, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. There's what you do. You thank Him. You pray to Him. And you tell about Him. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that His name is exalted. We are forgiven and blessed and saved to evangelize. To tell others about the great deeds God has done. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. God's name should be exalted internationally. We need to tell of his greatness throughout the earth. How are we doing with that? Maybe I should say first, do you see the logic in this? Based upon what he's done in chapter 11, does it make sense that we would thank, praise, pray, and declare his great works? seems to me like this flows very naturally from the blessings of chapter 11. Of course, this is what we do. How do we do? 
It's interesting to me that, that we're, we're told to praise God uh, for all the glorious things He's done. And we're also told to, um, the people here are also told to be joyful about it. And, and it seems like, on the one hand, that stems from <coughs> being thrilled that somebody that powerful and that glorious is on your side. But in another sense, it goes back to the humility thing that we were talking about. Because, I mean, it, we tend to not be too excited about talking about how great somebody else is unless we have a proper perspective about ourselves. And so it's hard to be joyful about praising God until we have the right perspective. Yeah, absolutely. We need, we need so much in this to focus on the Lord. The focus in this is not on us. It's not on our greatness, our accomplishments. It's all on the Lord. When we really get our focus on God, then it's, it's, it is joyful to praise and to thank and to declare Him. Other comments? You see verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Sort of the climax of our hope. We've seen the Holy One of Israel. Now He is in our midst. How joyful. Wow, how wonderful that He's come down to be with us. Right. Kind of like Isaiah's response <clears throat> once he was forgiven, he immediately wanted to tell others. Yes. He was ready to, to accomplish the mission of declaring God's word. I think that's where we fall down the most. I, wow. And why do we fall down in declaring the great deeds of God? Do you appreciate them enough? That's probably the fundamental reason. Because our focus is on the Lord. It's more focused on our efforts. Yes. And why else? I don't think we see the magnitude of, of our sin and of His grace. That's true. And I'm thinking that we fear men. And we're worried they'll think we're kooky if we start talking about the Lord very much. <laughs> and if we only could appreciate the greatness of the Lord, who cares what they think? He ought to be exalted in our speech. We ought to tell people about His great deeds. And if they don't know Him, that's all the more reason for us to declare His greatness. After all, let this be known throughout the earth. We are God's uh, advertising agency. That's our job. Remember 1 Peter 2.9? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why did He choose us anyway? So that we would proclaim His excellencies. How good do we do with proclaiming His excellencies? Or have we pretty much tried to obscure our light as much as possible so that uh, nobody notices us? And nobody sees the Lord do what we say. Also, anybody mention First Samuel one or two hand prayer? I was thinking, uh, I mean, singing with Thanksgiving. I mean, hand his prayer after beginning Samuel in chapter two of First Samuel. Uh, just really emphasizes that in that she's, you know, she's giving thanks for the gift. <laughs> but it, this song turns into outright praise of the giver. And that's very much how it should be for us as we think of the thing that he's given us. And in Israel's case, the, the you know, uh, redemption uh, and uh, whatever blessings they, they experience is like we do, it should, that should lead us toward outright praise of the one who gives. That's what he's seeking from us, not just thanks for specific things that we have that bless us, uh, but to realize that he's forgiven. Amen. Other thoughts and comments? I think that, um, I guess anyone who really knows me knows that I'm a Georgia fan, and they'll know that very well. And why do they know that? Well, because I tell them. I let it be known. And anything that you're excited about, obviously you're going to talk about. 
think about the things that you talk about the most. It's the things that you actually take joy in. You're not going to be talking about things that you're bored with or things that you hate. It's, it's not really what you talk about the most. So when you think about what you talk about, how often does God come up? And it's just, if we truly are excited about this, and if we truly are joyful by the fact that we're able to or, or draw to the springs of salvation, we're joyful at these things, why aren't we telling anybody? Pretty convicting, isn't it? Even among ourselves. Shane. It reminds me of that song we say, I have a passion for my God. But if you really had a passion for God, if you really love God, then you got nothing. You got nothing to say. It's going to consume Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, good point. Do we remember that song? Can you read a cup? No, no, not that one. I'll let you, Kyle. The song of this chapter. 